Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. Good morning. Let me ask you to join me in Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22. This is, uh, as you're turning over there, just by a quick way of re- remembrance, we are working our way through an encapsulation of the fundamentals of our, of our doctrine, of our core beliefs, uh, the things that we, we believe must be believed in order to call yourself a, a child of God or a follower of Jesus Christ. And, um, and so we're, we're working within the premise of moving from a, a thing or a system of things you believe uh, in or that you know and pushing those things down further into the systems of our lives where we walk in belief. So I can know things and it doesn't change. Uh, my life. But if I believe things, then I take the thoughts that I think through these truths and it course corrects and changes my decision making. And it begins to, well, we see transformation take place as we adapt to truth in our critical thinking, in our attitudes, in our behaviors, much more than just saying that we believe in a set of confessions or uh, you know, those things are, are, are pretty cheap. Yes, we believe in these facts, but moving facts into a system of behavior is much different. That's what we find with Christian Christianity. There are many people who believe the facts of Christianity, but very few who allow those facts to affect our everyday life. And so I'm going to ask you, I know we're, we're almost through with the, uh, the creed, but I'm going to ask you if you would to stand with me, and we're going to get that right off the bat this morning. For those of you who are here for the very first time or uh, maybe have not been here in a little while, uh, we don't do this every week. We're just doing this to kind of get into the system of our remembrances and years down the road when we think about this, we'll have an encapsulation of our core doctrines right here. All right, just repeat with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, He rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Of all the things you're going to remember from this series is that Catholic means global. I know that. I know that. So we are not pledging allegiance to the Catholic, Holy Roman Catholic Church, but to the Church of Jesus Christ as it exists everywhere simultaneously. The global church. So we continue to work through the Apostles' Creed. We come to this statement. And He will come to judge the living and the dead. Now remembering that this confession of faith is almost 2,000 years old. At least certain parts of it are 2,000 years old and have always been believed. Knowing that it was not written until after the Scripture was complete. 
And knowing, certainly after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the very fact that the early church believed that Jesus would come again tells us that they're not talking about His first coming or even His resurrection, but about a future coming. It would be different than the first coming. So the coming of Jesus Christ is actually the central theme of the New Testament. In fact, in the New Testament, it is called the blessed hope of the Christian. The blessed hope. It's mentioned over 300 times in the New Testament alone. And so it was definitely on the minds of the early Christians. And it was placed in Scripture by the uh, uh, movement of the Holy Spirit. So it was central to their hopes and their anticipation in the hostile world that they live in. Now remember, there are still Christians who live in this world like they did. Uh, but there are, you know, we, we, all of Christianity is not like we get to experience. So there's still lots of persecution uh, around the world uh, for those who bear the name of Christ. But especially for the first century Christians, all Christians were persecuted. Uh, these Christians had lost their families. They had been separated and split up from their loved ones. They lost their jobs, their homes, their property. Everything that we would say makes a man or a woman important was stripped completely away from them. And so you can imagine the hope of the second coming of Jesus Christ was good news to them because it puts them out of the present misery. But when we live hoping that this world gives us the conveniences and the satisfaction and the pleasure that we're looking for, then we really kind of put the second coming of Jesus Christ kind of gets in our way. You know, we would say, well, I know Jesus is coming back again, but I really hope I get to experience this and this and this and first. Well, if, just know that when things get tough, when finances get tough, when relationships get unbearable, when, the, when life falls apart, those are the moments when we really start looking forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ. We start praying for it. In fact, the New Testament ends with the Apostle John on an island separated from anything comfortable. And he says, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. So as long as we are pursuing comfort and as long as we're pursuing rightness, And pleasure in this world, the second coming of Jesus Christ is going to be a far off thought. So scripture in the New Testament especially spends a great deal of time telling us that we should be prepared for the second coming of Christ. That we should be eagerly living in anticipation of his return. So the delay of Jesus, you say 2,000 years is a long time to be every day living in anticipation of the second coming. That's true. In fact, Peter says, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, that in the end of time, there will be people all over the world that will be scoffing at the second coming of Jesus and saying, well, where is he already? For 2,000 years you've been saying he's coming back today and he's not here yet. I believe one of the great barriers to our... Drawing strength from this doctrine of His second coming is our worldly-mindedness. We get so wrapped up in what's going on today, we're not looking toward His second coming. Now listen, we believe in the second coming, which means that I'm going to base my life around that. I will make decisions based upon that. It's not just something that we affirm with our minds and saying, yes, I believe, I know about the second coming. Do you believe in the second coming? I believe in the second coming. 
But are we living in anticipation? I mean, our decision making, are our prayers revolving around the second coming of Christ? That's what the New Testament screams, is that everything for the believer revolves around the second coming of Christ. Self-centeredness, distractions. We get so caught up in the affairs of this world, and some things are good things. But I think sometimes we're so satisfied with the good things that this world has to offer that we forget about great things and even better things that eternity has to offer those who follow Jesus Christ. So I'm telling you, if this world, if this is where you're hoping you get all of the pleasures that you possibly can get, you may forfeit the pleasures of eternity. But if you live for the pleasures of eternity, then the second coming of Jesus Christ is a great relief to the burdens that this world bears as a result of living for Jesus Christ. In this world, Jesus said, you will have trouble. You cannot live for Jesus and not experience trouble. But Jesus is talking about trouble for His namesake, not just ordinary troubles that everybody faces. We cannot forfeit the best for just good things. But these good things keep us from meditating on, hoping in, and looking for the best things of God. But this is the constant refrain in the New Testament is this. Christians, don't let that be so for you. Be ready, be prepared, be alert, be sober-minded. Live in light of His coming. He is coming again and be ready when He comes and live as if it's the very next breath you take. Over and over, Jesus in His teaching. Every story He tells, really. Peter, Paul, John the author of the book of Hebrews, every other author in the New Testament remind us that we are to live in light of the coming of Jesus Christ. Which means for us, I'll use these terms often, but it it means to learn does not come naturally or even supernaturally, but to learn to live kingdom-minded. Every decision is about a, a decision that impacts the future kingdom. How I think, how I feel, how I spend, where I go, who I love, how I love, how I process life. Learning to be kingdom-minded. And as long as we're living in this realm, with this kingdom in mind, we're going to be separated from being able to look forward. Let me break it down this way. Learning Jesus is a long process. In fact, it really takes our life... I would say that we hit platitudes where we just learn to get better at certain things. But I want, you, I want you to walk through. There was a time in your life where you learned about Jesus. We know about Jesus. And we even affirm that the facts about Jesus are true. All of the evidence points to that the facts of Jesus Christ are true. Okay? So I know about Jesus, which then I have to make a decision. Am I going to move toward Jesus or am I going to push away from Jesus? If I move to Jesus, then I learn to know Jesus. Now I'm in a relationship with Him. It works back and forth. He advocates for me. He pours Himself into me and I give myself to Him. I I know Him personally. Once you know Him personally, I will tell you, when I became a Christian, it was because I knew Jesus, but I was terrified of Him. But I was more terrified of hell. Amen? Anybody? 
I was more terrified of hell, and so I gave my life to Jesus Christ. But after I learned Jesus, I learned to love Jesus after knowing Him. I don't, you don't love Jesus first. So those of you who are waiting to love Jesus, you, you, you don't love Jesus first. You know Him first. Then you love Him. And before long, perfect love casts out fear, right? So when you learn to love someone, you begin to trust someone. And so not only do I give Jesus my eternity, I give Jesus my Sunday and my Monday and my Tuesday and my attitudes and my thoughts and my sacrifices. I give Him my life because I've learned to trust Him. That Jesus can do more with what I give Him than I can do with myself. Once I trust Jesus, I can move into serving Jesus and giving myself entirely to Him. But watch this in reverse. If I know about Jesus, but Jesus threatens me. In other words, I know the facts. I even affirm the facts of Jesus Christ. But Jesus is going to get in my way to my best life. He's going to rob me of the world. He's going to rob me of my calendar. He's going to rob me of the relationships that I want and how I want to live them. He's going to rob me of all of the pleasures of this world. And so I'm going to push Jesus back a little bit. You will never know, a person, have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ if you push back that knowledge. And you will never love someone that you do not know. And you will never trust someone that you do not love. And you will never serve someone that you you cannot trust. So let me spin that just for a moment. You say, wait, we're called to serve everybody. That's right. But you don't serve them because you trust them. You serve them because you trust Him. That's why He says everything that we do, every thought that we think, do it to the glory of God the Father. Don't do it because you trust people. So some of you, I know the reason that we don't serve people is because some people we don't really like. Well, that doesn't matter. That's why God removes that away. You serve people because you trust Him. Somebody panhandles you and you say, well, I don't know if I can trust Him or not. Well, what difference does that make? Do you trust Him? Because that's who you're serving. Let them see Him in you, and you better make sure that you see Him in everyone. To the least of these. All right, well, so let's look at Revelation chapter 22, verse 12. <clears throat> Revelation 22, verse 12, tells us that Jesus is coming to judge the spiritually and the physically dead and living. There's two things going on here in this confession. Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead. If you're talking about spiritually, these are people who are spiritually dead. Jesus is coming to judge them. People who are spiritually alive, Jesus is coming to judge them. People who are physically dead and people who are physically alive when Jesus appears. I guess the thing that we most learn here is that you cannot escape the judgment of Jesus, no matter who you are or what you believe. Jesus said, Behold, I am coming soon. You say, wait a minute, that's a 2,000 year old promise. I don't know about you, but soon is not... When my wife says, hey, do you mind to do this? I'm going to start saying, I will do that soon. <laughs> right? Soon. Remember, with God, one day is as a thousand years, right? So soon doesn't mean that He is delaying. Soon means that He is patiently waiting for us to have every opportunity to live in anticipation of His coming. 
Behold, I am coming soon. Also, we, we get to put in the commas in Greek. Greek doesn't, Greek doesn't have commas. I think one of the things that Jesus is saying here, I think this is a misplaced comma. I think Jesus is saying is when I come, it's too late. When I come, it's soon. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. His recompense, his judgment. Now this verse that we just read is not alone in the New Testament. Over and over and over, there are three facts that are reported in Scripture concerning the second coming of Jesus. The first one is, hold on to this one because this is really deep. Jesus is coming again. Right? That's, that's number one. Jesus is returning. Number two, when Jesus comes again, it will not be to a manger. Jesus is not coming in humility. Jesus is coming in exaltation and glory and will be bringing a sword with Him this time. The same Jesus that you see leave is not the same Jesus that will return. He will be coming back glorified and exalted and as the righteous judge. Same Jesus, completely different uh, uh, purpose. The third thing is that when He comes, He is going to judge us according to our lives, according to the way that we live, according to our processes, and He is going to render each man or woman accordingly. Meaning that you are going to have your own individual judgment. We're not being judged as mankind. The world is not going to be judged. It will be, but completely separate from your own personal judgment. You will not be judged based upon how many churches your grandfather started or how loyal and faithful your great-great-grandparents were in their faith. You will not be judged based upon your intention. You will not be judged based upon your want to. You're going to be judged very personally about the things that you actually thought, did, and how you behaved. Very clear throughout Scripture. So those three things are expressed over and over and over in the New Testament. Now, I'm going to tell you something. This is the central theme of the New Testament, and it being the central, let me ask you, when's the last time you sat down and read a new book that's been written in the last 20 years about the second coming of Jesus Christ? Or when have you ever listened to an iPod or an article or a, a podcast or an article or, man, I'm at that age now where I just messed all that up. <laughs> Listen to an iPod. Yeah, a, a, a podcast, don't you? A podcast or a, uh, a, an article or a magazine article or something that talks about the second coming of Jesus and living in that. Now that's, we don't talk about that anymore. What we're talking about now is the seven secrets to unlocking the best da-da-da-da-da. The three things that you must do to have a better da-da-da-da-da. That's what, that's what sells now. So that's what we're selling is how can you have all of your felt needs in this world? How can it be better? And Christians today have taken their eyes off the judgment of Jesus Christ and it is the most certain thing that is left to come. The creed that we just read has listed facts up until now. But for the first time, we find motivation and purpose for our living. So because of all of these things, and I'm not going to take the time to list them all, but because we believe in the facts of all these things, we finally get to the, what do I do about it? Well, because I believe 
in all these things, here's how it affects my life, my day. The issues move from what we believe to why we believe them. Over and over we find Jesus telling His disciples to be ready for His coming. How do you do that? What does it mean to be ready for His coming? Well, first I want us to go, and you write these down or check, or if you're really, really quick with your thumbs, you can, you can follow along with us. But in Psalm 96, verse 13, it's the idea, even in the Old Testament, this is not just a New Testament idea, it's an Old Testament idea too. The psalm is, call, is a call to worship. It's, it's, uh, we ought to memorize it. In fact, I'm going to look at the last uh, four verses, 10 through 13. Listen to this. It says, Let the heavens be glad, and let the earth rejoice, and let the sea roar, and all that fills it. Fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For He comes, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. This is a standard Old Testament refrain, in, especially in the Psalms, over and over. Believers in the Old Testament, and they were going through a world of persecution. And... And there are things, you realize there are things that you can do that can't be fixed. You know what I mean? There's, what, what about somebody, I want you to, well, I don't want you to think about it, but I want you to imagine being hurt so deeply by someone. And then that someone comes and says, I'm sorry. Does that undo the pain that has been done? It doesn't. No, it doesn't, sadly. There are things that you can do in this world that cannot be taken back and they cannot be fixed. And for Christians who now have a different spirit in them who's looking for mercy and looking for justice, it would be great to live in a world without a curse. But even with the resurrection of Christ and His ascension, the curse is still among us. All creation still groans in anticipation, not for the resurrection of Jesus, but for His coming again. All of creation, including us. Because we see a lot of poverty around the world. We see children abused around the world. We see a lot of worldly devastation. We see 300 Christians murdered in worship on Easter Sunday. And I don't want to just point that one out, but there's all sorts of these things. We say, Where, why, if God really... We're looking for all wrongs to be righted. But they will be. One day, when the righteous and faithful judge appears, and with that perfect judgment, fixes everything pertaining to the curse. And listen, for a Christian who needs closure at the end of every day, that thing distracts me, right? That need for things to be righted, it distracts me because I spend all my time working to make everything fixed. When you work that way, you're actually taking a step back from growing in your faith. That's not working in your faith. That's taking a step back. We need to recognize when we get wronged, when people say things that hurt us, when people treat us in ways that we do not deserve, and you need to fix it, just know you're taking the judgment away from the faithful, perfect judge. You need to move on. I know I'm not saying you're deeply, mortally wounded. Just get over it. But kind of. If you live with the second coming in mind, you will remember that Jesus said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay. 
So you don't have to repay. You don't have to be right. You don't have to get your due. You can trust in the judgment of King Jesus who is faithful and who is right every time. What this does is it frees us up to live sacrificially and selflessly in this world, serving one another that despitefully, spitefully uses us to be able to pray for those who persecute us, to be able to lift up those who hold us back. Boy, wouldn't that be wonderful if we could live knowing that there's some things in this world we're not going to be able to fix. There's so much grumbling and complaining. I was then and then. All these things hold us back from being able to exercise His righteous judgment as well in this world. Pointing people to Jesus instead of to how we've been wounded or hurt or all of these pet causes all around the world. Listen, Jesus said this, and I I didn't say it, but I'm going to echo Him. You're always going to have the poor among you. When we get caught up and that's the thing we focus on only, we're forgetting that Jesus is coming again. And we focus as if the cure belongs to us, but the cure to the curse belongs to King Jesus. Let's move on. Let's push people to Christ instead of their felt needs. It's a very, very important part of keeping our eyes on Him. Jesus is coming to right every effect of the curse. Look at Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4. It says, But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Now this is the expression of Isaiah. His hope was that one day Jesus will set things right. God will settle accounts and He will do what is right for those who are living for His kingdom and He will do right toward those who are living for their own kingdom. But Jesus will be the one to determine. We can just free our hands of it. That's the grand hope of the Old Testament. For the Christian looking at the world around him, recognizing there are some things that can never be put right in this life, the hope is that at the last day, God's going to put everything right. And that may be the only hope in some hard circumstances. I want you to imagine those very first Christians. I want you to imagine having your wife taken from your house and put into slavery or your husband ripped from the bed and taken off into slavery or your children plucked out of the home and sent off into slavery. And there's not one thing you can do about it. And you know you're never going to see them again or slaughtered right there in their own house just because they're Christians. And when you sit there and you're dealing with this destruction or you find out that somebody else is moving into the home that you've been living to produce for yourself or somebody else is working your job and now you're living in the street, all of a sudden you take hope in no that one day Judge Jesus is going to come back and vindicate me. That's hope. But we get so wrapped up in our own little mundane dramas and our own little mundane issues and our complaints and we're focused on right here and how I feel and what I think. We can't see the second coming of Jesus Christ who is going to fix all things for us. And it would be so much easier to see it if we lived in anticipation of His kingdom Not our own. Be encouraged by that. That's not a bad thing. We should not look at the second coming of Jesus as dread. I remember, and you may, you, uh, I don't know how I want to say this. Uh, So I remember being really young, and my mom and dad, I grew up, my mom and dad always telling me that Jesus may come today. Now listen, for a five year old, that's terrifying. 
Thank you, Mom and Dad. Pray the Lord my soul to take. That's, that's terrible. So uh, you, you start thinking about, wow, Jesus is going to come, maybe not today, but in my lifetime. I mean, I've always lived. How many of you were told that Jesus, Jesus was coming back in your lifetime? Yeah, well, you're, we don't tell you that anymore, but Jesus may come back in your lifetime. Uh, so I remember, though, being much younger than this. Uh, I remember thinking, man, I really want Jesus. I really believe Jesus is coming back, but before he does, I'd really like to experience you know, these things, whatever they are. You know, marriage, family, you know, whatever it is. But I can tell you, once you've experienced those things, I can look back and say, you know what? Those things were painful. <laughs> a lot of them. A lot of those things have uncertainties and nervousness, energy, and worriness, and worrisome. And, and uh, Now, I love, I love everything that God has given me. But you know what? I rec- recognize today that we live in a way where the second coming of Jesus is like something we would say, yeah, but boy, I really hope that that's, I've got a lot of life left I want to live before I experience that. We need to be living in anticipation of nothing in this world is better than the hope that comes with Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus said this to his disciples. He said, truly I say to you, in the new world, he's talking about after he returns, When the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So I want you to realize this. Jesus is saying this to His disciples. He's saying to them, I'm going to be the judge at the end of the world. This is the first time Jesus has told them that. Now the Jews lived with the understanding that God is going to judge us one day. They always had that. We already talked about that in the Old Testament. They knew that God is coming to judge. So when Jesus says... I'm going to be the judge. He is inserting himself as God. So for those who say Jesus never claimed to be God, well, yes, he did. When he claims that he's going to be the righteous judge. And not only that, but he is telling them that they are going to judge with him. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. Jesus said, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Realize this. It is great. It is great to know that Jesus is the right hand of the Father, but he is not just sitting and reigning, he is sitting as the righteous judge. He's not just sitting as the king, he is sitting as the judge. In Acts chapter 10, verse 42, Peter said, And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is who? He's the judge of the living and the dead. He's been appointed by the Father to be the judge. So the New Testament focuses on God's final judgment, but God's final judgment is going to be executed through the person of Jesus Christ. That is terrific news to us. Here's why that's great news. It's because we don't have a high priest that does not understand what we go through. There is no sin, no temptation that you can experience that Jesus has not experienced yet without sin. But He died, and when He was buried, and when He took the keys to death, hell, and the grave, 
and then he resurrected as proof that his sacrifice was enough. He ascended to the right hand of the Father where he, he now mediates and advocates for you. And so he is the one who makes us have... He's, he's the key. He's the key into the, the pathway of the Father. So whenever we have Jesus as the judge, when it comes to all of the opportunities in eternity, Jesus is the one we want to judge because He's the one who understands us the most. That's why it was so important for Him to be our kinsman redeemer so that He could judge us righteously. Listen, if the Father judged you, and I don't mean this in any kind of disrespect, but the Father doesn't know what it feels like to be a human and under temptation. That's where Jesus comes in. He understands the temptation, yet without sin. And so He can advocate. He alone can advocate. His judgment is sweet to us because He is a friend and understands. Acts chapter 17, verse 31. Paul was in Athens. And he said this, "...because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness." That part's Old Testament. Here's the New Testament part. By a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by rising him, raising him from the dead. So God is going to judge the world through a man that he has appointed. And here's how you're going to know who the man is. The man that God chooses will have risen from the dead. Romans chapter 2, verse 16. Paul continues to say the same thing he's been saying. But on that day when, according to my gospel, Paul said, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The secrets of men. Remember last week we talked about God and Jesus through Christ His sovereignty and how Jesus is the righteous ruler. But when he, when he ascended to the right hand of the Father, it was like the umbrella shoot popped open. He's intergalactic now. I mean, Jesus is everywhere all at once. When He was in the flesh, when He was awarded the worthiness of the Father, He was in the flesh. But now His, his power is imminent everywhere all at the same time. Right? It's very important for us to understand that His ascension is what, is what does this uh, for us. But listen, now that that happens, every human being who has ever lived is going to have every secret they've ever kept exposed. Because Jesus is everywhere. Listen, I'm not trying to scare you, but I am trying to say this. You ever, you ever been in trouble? Any, how many of you ever remember getting in trouble in school? Anybody ever remember getting in trouble at school? How much better did you feel knowing that somebody else was sitting beside you? Have you, ever, have you ever had a secret that you just really wanted to share with somebody and you find somebody you can trust and how much better it feels when they give you a secret too? Because you say to yourself, what if they tell somebody what I told them? So how do I guarantee I'm going to tell you one of my secrets to prove to you now you've got some way to get back at me? Oh, listen, shared secrets are awesome. I mean, they knit you together with people, right? May not be a good thing, but they knit you together with people. Now, it's great for us to think about being able to share a secret with our advocate who sits at the right hand of the Father. 
We love knowing that we can express ourselves freely to Jesus, our advocate, our mediator, the one who understands us, right? We love that. But you need to know this. Jesus knows every secret, but you will still be judged for every one of them. He judges the secrets of men. The things that you're doing right now that you think you're getting away with, well, you may in this world, but when you live in anticipation of the second coming, those things will go away from your life. The things you look at, the things you hear, the things that you spend your time thinking on, if you live in light of the second coming of Jesus Christ, our lives would look a lot different. The way we talk to one another, if you think about the conversations that we have with people we say we love, That'd be the last conversation that we ever have before the second coming of Christ. I'm pretty sure that is not how we want to go out. The things that you get away with, the things that nobody else will ever know. Know this. You will stand in judgment for it one day. And there's not one thing you can do to escape it. Jesus doesn't keep secrets. He exposes them. But whether you tell him or not, he already knows. The secret things of our heart will be uncovered at the judgment seat of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, Paul goes even further and he says this, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each will receive his commendation from God. God does not, Jesus will not only judge us based on the evidence. He's going to judge us based upon even, and this, even the motivations. Listen, I know my attitudes. That scares me to death. I know my attitudes. I know my actions. I know my behaviors. But even I don't know my motivations. I mean, you're getting judged at an atomic level here. reminds us that when we truly meditate biblically on the theme of the second coming and the judgment seat of Christ, man, we're talking about repentance. And your judgment is personal and your repentance must be personal. And that, that kind of judgment, man, that's unsettling apart from the grace of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says... Paul said this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due. Now that's not always a good thing. May receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. I mean, this is Paul, the one who said, You are saved by grace. I mean, this is the apostle of grace says, You are saved by grace, but you will be judged by your deeds. Is that a contradiction to the doctrine of grace? No, I think it actually magnifies the doctrine of grace. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, Paul said to Timothy, I charge you that in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by His appearing in His kingdom. 
So the charge comes in the name of Jesus Christ, and He's coming again to judge the living and the dead. Listen, Jesus judges us now in this life by consequences and by discipline, but He also is going to judge us in death and for all eternity. Physically now, spiritually later. He will judge the living and the dead. And so for those who think that you're going to die and just just automatically go to heaven, you have to pass by the judgment seat of Christ. And every one of us will give an account for every deed done in the body. We now find out for every purpose of our heart, even down to the motivation level. It's terrifying. Seven verses later, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, Paul says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not to me only, but to all those who loved His appearing, who have walked in the judgment and the grace of Jesus Christ in this life, living in anticipation of life everlasting. You think how arrogant it is that Paul says on this side of death, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. This is the apostle of grace who knows that the righteousness of Christ has been imputed upon him. He is righteous only because he has lived in the future anticipation of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Look at James chapter 5, verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Listen, that's only a, a few passages out of at least 300 just in the New Testament that illustrate for these, these truths over and over and over God will judge the world in the end. Jesus is the one with whom He has appointed to do that judgment. And that is great news for those who have learned to know Jesus, to love Jesus, to trust Jesus, and to serve Jesus. And Jesus will judge in accordance to how we've lived our lives. In Revelation chapter 20, I know we we read 22, but in Revelation chapter 20 verse 12 and 13, I'm going to read that really quickly. John said, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. This is the judgment seat of Christ. Scripture also calls this the the great white throne judgment. This is where every human being who has ever lived is going to stand and give an account for every deed, every thought, every attitude, and every motive of their entire existence. And as we're standing there, the books were opened. What books? The books that tell us how to conduct our lives and how to live in obedience to the life of Jesus Christ. These books are going to be opened. And your life is going to be evaluated based upon your obedience to the truth of God's Word. How do we do? Let me, just, let me give you a real quick hint. You failed with your first breath. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
So you are going to be judged for every deed done in the body. And then you're going to get a, whether it's good or whether it's bad. And let me just tell you, it's bad. And whenever the other book is open, the book of life. In this book, Scripture tells us, is found every name who has lived in anticipation of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And if your name is in that book, if you've trusted Jesus Christ in this life, regardless of your deeds, you'll be rewarded where you win, and they'll be burned off where you lose. But if you have trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, He will say to you, here is your crown of righteousness. Enter in, good and faithful servant, into the joys of the Lord. If you're just trusting in your own works, if you're wrapped up in the day-to-day, and you're not truly living in love, in trust, and in service to Jesus Christ, if your name is not found in the book of life, you're going to spend eternity in the lake of fire that burns for all eternity, separate from any hope of restoration. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell were delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. As, as true followers of Jesus Christ, what this does is it causes us to look forward to Jesus correcting and righting every wrong. Not just, listen, and that's including in me. I cannot wait until the second coming of Jesus Christ when He will rid me entirely of all the guilt and shame that I've carried around for so long. Yes, I'm forgiven. I recognize that. But I want to be forgiven completely and to know it and be able to live in His presence for all eternity. So to think about the second coming of Jesus Christ, there is not one thing that the world has to offer that compares these momentary distresses in this life pale in comparison to the eternal. And there's hope. You think about the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's not something we should dread. It's something that we should look forward to experiencing, not only for ourselves, but for all of our loved ones. So we start working on getting the news, the good news of Jesus Christ out into every opportunity that we have. And then we start thinking about the hope that comes with Jesus righting every wrong. We start thinking about every wrong that we've ever committed. And it causes us to live not just a one-time moment of repentance, but learning to live lives of repentance. And so we walk being very, very careful, circumspectly, taking very careful consideration of what we do, because what we do changes how we think. So we start processing life in a completely different way and being very careful of what we allow into our hearts, because out of the heart comes the words, and out of the words come judgment. So I would say we start living lives of repentance. Then we can start learning to live lives filled with humility where we realize that life is not about us at all. And we start focusing on King Jesus. Hope, repentance, and humility. These are the marks of the followers of Jesus Christ. So, I say all of that to say that the second coming then becomes our motivation for living. 
Someone once approached John Wesley one day and they said, Mr. Wesley, if you knew that Jesus was coming back tonight, what would you do different today? He said, nothing. Wouldn't that be great? To be able to live knowing that every moment was in anticipation that this might be the last one. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word. I ask that you would help us to experience the fullness of it. Your Holy Spirit would guide us, guard us, help us to, to remember. We have gotten out of the habit of eagerly expecting with excitement, knowing that every wrong will be righted and the curse will finally be lifted. And I pray, Lord, we would not be satisfied with good things while we're here, but we would look forward to great things for all eternity. Help us not to compromise while we wait. Help us to encourage one another while we can. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.